What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. And I'm super excited. I I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait for you all to listen to this episode. So today's guest is Robert Frank. All right. So he is an economist. He taught at Cornell for a very long time. And the guy writes like crazy. And he writes on such a diverse range of topics. Uh, and one of my favorite books from Robert is Success and Luck. So as we'll talk about uh, in this conversation is the idea of a meritocracy, right? And it's something that we're all kind of, you know, taught to believe in, especially here in the United States. And it's something that I've believed in for a very long time. And it's something that my views have recently shifted on. and. Yeah, I I loved I loved his book because the idea of a meritocracy is you work hard, you get results, right? And I I'm starting asking questions. Um, I recently actually wrote about this in a Substack piece about the LuLaRoe docu series over on Amazon Prime. So by the way, if you're not subscribed to my Substack, it is free, and I get to you know write about different topics that you know come up from books or my conversations and all that. But anyways. Yeah, this this idea, you know, that we live in this meritocracy, meritocracy, but we have to ask ourselves a few questions. Does everybody who works extremely hard become successful? Like that's that's a very simple question. If you work hard, will you be successful? And to me, it seems like if the answer is no, we need to address a few things, right? So here in the United States, you know, our, our system is set up much better than a lot of other places, but that doesn't mean that there isn't, you know, room for improvement. And there's a lot of debates around like, hey, you should just be grateful that we're not living in you know, some other country. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, we can still, we can still improve a little bit, but we need to start recognizing whether or not hard work equals success. And if not, Let's take a look and figure out why. Well, anyways, in Robert Frank's book, Success and Luck, he really breaks this thing down. And I actually read the book for a second time prior to this uh, uh, interview. And yeah, like, you know, uh, Robert and I in this discussion, we discuss, you know, does does luck play a larger role in our success than we acknowledge? And why is that, right? Why do we neglect it? For those of us who have had success, in any way, shape, or form, whether it's life and our careers and our relationships, whatever it is, like, why don't we acknowledge like, hey, I got kind of lucky, right? Um, but yeah, we also talk about this concept of the Matthew effect. And as somebody who creates content, as somebody who has worked in marketing, you know, all these things, like, I think the Matthew effect is one of the most important things that anybody can learn. So if you're, if you're listening to this, whether you are an, an author, a student, uh, a working professional, or if you're like me, if you create content in any way, shape or form, you have to learn about the Matthew effect. But one of the most important questions I asked Robert, you know, in this conversation is something that I ask myself a lot as a parent, you know, how do I talk about this with my son? Right. Because the fear around discussing some of the myths around meritocracy is that people will just give up. But that's not the case. Right. So even though I'm skeptical of the idea of meritocracy, I work very hard. But anyways, we talk about so many of these topics and a lot more. Robert Frank is just 
I don't know. He's he's a great person. He's a great writer. Uh, I love his books. And hopefully he'll come back on to talk about some of his other books. But anyways, check out the description down below. Make sure you are following Robert over on Twitter. And make sure you grab a copy of Success and Luck. I'll also link a copy of one of his more recent books, which is Under the Influence. And it talks about how we're influenced and all that. It's a fantastic book. Maybe he'll come back on to talk about that because that's actually where I was introduced to his work. So that's linked down in the description. Also down in the description, you will find my social media links. So make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes, books I'm reading. And most of all, I just love talking with all of you. Some of you send me book recommendations, guest recommendations, and all that. And I really enjoy that. So make sure you're following me at The Rewired Soul. All right. And by the way, before we get started, if you're new here, make sure you're following the podcast. Make sure you're following or subscribed so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And it helps out the podcast to kind of spread the word a little bit because the algorithms love that stuff, all right? But anyways, this is a long intro, but I felt like it was needed because Robert Frank and this topic are so interesting, all right? But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Robert Frank about his book, Success and Luck. Hello, Robert. How are you doing today? Very good, Chris. How are you? I am fantastic. Fell in love with hey. your work. So glad that we're able to link up and chat. And today we're going to be talking about success and luck. So before we dive into the book, for the few people from my audience who might not know you, can you give a little bit of uh, your background, who you are, what you do, and what you study and teach and all that stuff? I'm an economist. Uh, I've spent uh, virtually my whole uh, professional career at Cornell University. I retired from Cornell in July of 2020, uh, and now I'm uh, doing just whatever pleases me day by day and looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. So, so yeah, you've, this Success and Luck actually isn't your newest book. I believe Conformity was your newest book, wasn't it? Just came out. I, that's a book by Kat Sunstein. Uh, Conformity is. Uh, I have a book that uh, is on a very sim similar set of issues. It's called Under the Influence. That's, that's what I mean. Yeah, I, I get the blue covers mixed up. I yes. apologize. <laughs> but, anyway, but success and luck. Can you can you kind of discuss uh, what inspired the book? Like what when were you just kind of looking around and just been like, I want to write about this and talk about this in a book. Yeah, one of the themes of the book is that uh, people tend not to notice the lucky breaks they benefit from as they go along. Uh, I, I don't think that's uh, an indictment of people generally. I think there, there are interesting reasons why we don't notice the role of luck in our lives. But, but we do notice it when it hits us over the head horn. Yeah. And, and I had uh, actually several experiences where it was impossible for me or anyone who, who had such experiences, not to notice how lucky they were to have gotten, got through them. And so I started writing uh, about the role of chance events in the labor market. I, I, I published a column in the Times, oh, 10 years or so ago, uh, and, and have been uh, thinking about those issues since then. Uh, in 2016, as you know, I published Success of Luck, uh, which was 
uh, my meditations on those themes up until then, uh, mm -hmm. but I've continued to think about them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's great. Like, uh, I, I love how you, you know, blended in your own story as you talked about these larger topics. So just, you know, real, real quick about me, it's something that I had to come to terms with. I was this huge believer in meritocracy, mainly because I got sober in 2012. Right. And people die from addiction, tens of thousands, just in the United States, the new numbers came out of sure, like 93,000 sure. and I was supposed to die, but fortunately I got sober and, you know, I worked my butt off. Right. I was, you know, doing like, I was, I'm, I'm the type of guy who goes above and beyond. So a lot of it, I, you know, I'd look around at people and be like, why can't you just get sober? Why can't you just quit drugs? I did it. You know, you just work hard like I did. Right. But, you know, as I started to kind of look more at the world and part of it was just working in a rehab center and dealing yeah. with hundreds of people and, and realizing that they didn't have the same opportunities I did. And then it kind of slapped me right in the face. And that's why I, I really enjoy looking about this because I've had this complete shift. Like, first of all, my mom was seven years sober when I got sober, right? Uh -huh. Like, so that's big. Not only so, that. So you got yeah. the get sober gene, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. I got the addiction gene and the get sober gene. <laughs> yeah. And, and she, uh, you know, she, she actually is the clinical director at a rehab. Like not everybody has these opportunities. She yeah. paid for my sober living, you know? So I had to, I had to humble myself, right. And realize like I have opportunities that a lot of people don't have, you know what I mean? Right. Um, so why, why do you think it is that we, we deny the role that luck plays. Uh, I'm, I'm curious in the book, you talk a little bit about it being like an adaptive strategy. And I'm curious, like, if that's still like. Well, well there's a couple of ways it might be. Uh, one, one of the findings that psychologists have reported is that when, when we do really well at something, we attribute that to our skill and hard work. Uh, when we fail at something, we're more apt to do, attribute that to bad luck. And that may be adaptive in the following simple way. If you, if you think the time you failed was due to bad luck, that's not a reason not to try again. If you think the time you failed was because you weren't good enough, then it's easier to see how somebody would get discouraged and not discouraged and not try again. So, yeah. so in that sense, it could be adaptive. I've, I've also written that. It's probably a good thing that parents tell their kids that it's up to you whether you succeed or not. Uh, don't don't sit back and wait for your lucky break to to carry you along. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's true that the people who do succeed, almost all of them, are hardworking. Uh, they're, they're most of them very talented. Lots of people, of course, are hardworking and talented who don't succeed. So you know we we know those qualities are enough to, to guarantee your success, but, but you're much more likely to succeed if you work hard and, and you uh, develop your talents. And so I think stressing those things is probably an adaptive message for kids. What we ought to do too, though, I think is make clear to, to everyone that those qualities alone don't guarantee success. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't want to say, hey, uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you're, if you're doing poorly, uh, it may be that every reasonable effort was made, a combination of circumstances just didn't work out right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, in the book, uh, you talked about, you know, just pursuing like, you know, 
uh, a lot of us, like I, I played sports when I was younger and things like that. And, and then you kind of like start seeing like, okay, so this is very limited and all that. And, and, you know, you, you brought in the discussion and talk about just even when it comes to college admissions and things like that, like you, you were at Cornell for all those years and, you know, it, it takes good grades, it takes effort, it takes perseverance to get into these schools, but like on a personal level, how do we balance that and stay motivated? Like we were talking about children, right? Right before we hopped on, I talked about how I'm going to have my son read this. And something I'm constantly battling with is how do I sit him down and be like, hey, like there's a lot of things out of your control, but I don't want him to lose the motivation to try, you know? So that's something I'm fascinated with and curious about. And I need your expert advice on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think one of the 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 interesting paths to explore here is, is that in a certain sense, uh, all the things that happen to you are due to chance. Uh, you, you could say, uh, you're much more likely to succeed if you work hard and you mm -hmm. have a lot of talent, but let's say you have both of those qualities. You're really talented. Uh, you're smart. Uh, you're, you, you get up in the morning. The first thing you want to do is get on task. You work long hours with, without tiring all day. Not everybody has that impulse. Uh, where do you get it? We don't know. Uh, yeah. uh, our best uh, theory so far is that it's some unknown combination of genes and upbringing. So suppose you have, have those qualities. You, you were born with the raw genetic capacity to be trained or encouraged to, to develop your intellect and to take pride and satisfaction working hard. If, if you enter the, the adult world with those qualities, you're incredibly lucky. Uh, mm -hmm. think, think about the, the people who have the, neither one of those basic traits, you know, they're, they're at a huge disadvantage. Can you not claim credit therefore for your success? That's where it gets kind of interesting. You know, if, if, if you work hard, you know, when, when things don't go well, you got to pick yourself up off the mat and keep trying. That's difficult. Uh, and if you do it and you, and you get past an obstacle, I think it's absolutely adaptive to give yourself credit for doing that. Oh, I, 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 I congratulate myself. I feel good about what I did today because it was so hard. Uh, it sure, because you had the, the inclination to do it, you were lucky to have that inclination, but giving yourself a pat on the back for doing it is is a reward that encourages you to do it the next time when the chips are down yeah so it's good it's kind of you know maybe it is all luck but it's very important not to believe it's all luck yeah are you are you by chance familiar with uh the luck factor by richard weissman and some of his yes work? i've read that yeah yeah so when i when i really dove into this and i was trying to understand success and luck it was like right around the same time i read your book but anyways he talks about a study in there where they give these people like an impossible puzzle Right. And they asked, like, you know, do you perceive yourself as lucky or unlucky? They do a bunch of these things. But anyways, what they found was the people who perceive themselves as lucky just tried longer, even though the puzzle was impossible. Right. They would do it longer. And I right. told I told my son about this study like over a year ago when I first read the book. And mm -hmm. it's something that he that he remembers and brings yeah. up. So I, I definitely how, know. How old is your son? He is 12 and a half and okay. New Year's Eve will be 13. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, it's one of those, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, there's certain things where, you know, we can improve certain skills and all that, but 
where, where do you think we find the balance of like knowing when to cut our losses and just move away from that thing? You know what I mean? Because we don't want to quit too soon. Right. You see a lot of these self-help yeah. gurus like, what if you stop right before the lucky break, you know? So yeah. I, I, what do you, when do you think that, that point? Yeah, that's, that's of course, an impossible question to answer <laughs> with any precision. Uh, there, there's something in economics, uh, mid behavioral economics more, more properly called the sunk cost fallacy. Mm. Uh, you've, you've invested so much in this effort. You can't quit now. Uh, so, so when the time comes continued failure in spite of great investment, uh, the, the rational choice is to say, never mind how much I've spent so far, uh, does the next batch of spending promise a sufficiently high likelihood of success as to be worth making? Mm -hmm. uh, if the answer to that question is no, then that that's, it's time to bail, even though you've spent a lot of money and you, you hate to see it go. Uh, so, so don't fall victim to the sunk cost fallacy. I don't, I don't think, uh, that's the only risk though. Uh, oftentimes people quit too soon. They get discouraged, mm -hmm. uh, and, and success doesn't come easy. Uh, in many cases and, and battling past a few difficulties is really part of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, no it's interesting. No, no pat answer. Sorry. No, no, I, I get it. And it's interesting. You bring up the sunk cost fallacy with, you know, at the time of recording this in the news, just, uh, you know, everything about Afghanistan. And I, and when I hear about the sunk cost fallacy, I regularly hear them discussing war as a, yeah. you know, as an example, Yeah. like, oh, in order to honor the people who lost, we need to send more people in there. And it's exactly. like, exactly. Yeah. You know, what is it? But no, I, I that's I, a pure example of the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. Yeah. We need to sink more into it, but no, I, 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 I think I'm always looking for this like clear cut answer, but it's always case by case and right. balancing out and looking at the potential risks and, and, and all of that. But, um, you, a minute ago, you were talking about, you know, we don't like when it comes to like work ethic, for example, we're not a hundred percent sure how much is genetics, how much is, you know, upbringing. And, you know, let me just kind of set the, the foundation for this a little bit and use myself as an example. So as I mentioned, my mom was an alcoholic. My dad raised me, you know, uh, I was a, I was a super lazy kid, right? I got like C's in high school, whatever, but, uh, I have like an insane work ethic now, right? Like I do this podcast. I read, you know, I've read 250 books so far this year and I work full time during the day. Like. I'm constantly doing and creating, so I don't know what shifted. But anyways, anyways, when looking at this idea of meritocracy, like something that I try to get out of my head is like, not everybody has that. I don't know what that is, like where it comes from, because I don't think it was my parents. Maybe it was, but I don't know. But anyways, like my, my girlfriend recently wrote a paper on subminimum wage in uh, you know, uh, Fulker master's program in social work. And I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of this problem where they'll pay disabled people under minimum wage. And you talk about this in the book, how, you know, in this kind of capitalist society, we, we value certain skills and we say your worth is, is based on this. So that's a long way of me. You know, I guess my first part of this question is there are people who don't have that work ethic, like eliminating, you know, physical disabilities and things like that. Um, but 
I look at myself and I'm like, I got, you know, somehow it came. So do you think there's, there's something where we can teach people to, to kind of get that work ethic and be motivated and, and all that? You know, I think the most uh, systematic step to take is to get the incentives to align with behavior. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you do a productive thing and you play by the rules, uh, the system ought to reward you for doing that. And if, mm. if, uh, if the tax, uh, system isn't fair, if the enforcement of laws is, is haphazard, then people learn quickly enough that there's not a very clear link between the effort you put out and the reward you get. And that blunts the whole notion that you ought to work hard and play by the rules. So mm. I think, uh, you know, having, having the rules set up. Uh, in such a way that they make sense that they're perceived as fair by people and then enforcing them with an even hand is a critical step to take if you want to get people to to achieve their own full poten- potential because if they think th- the world is just a random place yeah it doesn't matter if i work hard or not yeah no you just you just blew my brain up robert that that makes total sense because i i'm thinking about you know, uh, just there's been a lot of discussion around uh, raising the, the regular minimum wage, right, to like $15 mm-hmm. an hour and all that. And, uh, you know, looking at the landscape and, and seeing, you know, over the years, CEOs, for example, are making thousands of percent more than the average worker. And in this meritocratic system, the 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 logic behind it is they must be working this much harder or providing this much value, which is impossible, right? Like they can't be working. Typically, as you move up the ladder, you don't have to work as hard too. Right. So, so do you think this is, this is something that kind of starts more at, you know, uh, individual companies and industries, or is it something that we need to start looking at policy? Like for everybody listening right now, should we be looking to our politicians to start talking about this or should we be going to employers and start talking about this stuff? Well, if, if you want a fair uh, and efficient reward structure, uh, many economists think that the market will work all, all that out just right on its own. But I think we now know that that's not the way things work. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 19... 19- 95, Philip Cook and I published a book called The Winner-Take-All Society, mm-hmm. uh, in which we argued that more and more we're seeing markets take on this winner-take-all structure like we've long seen in entertainment and sports. Uh, the, the handful of people at the top of each skill category get the lion's share of the total rewards in the entire category. So no, nobody remembers who the silver medalist was in the last mm-hmm. Olympics, but the, the gold medalist is on the cereal box and uh, earning millions of dollars a month in mm-hmm. endorsements. It's the same with CEOs. I mean, imagine Tim Cook uh, is 1% better than the next best candidate to run an Apple. And Apple's, uh, a- Apple is a, a, a $2.5 trillion company. It, it, it makes hundreds of billions of dollars a year in earnings if he's 1% better than the next bit candidate that he's literally worth at least a billion dollars a year more. He's not paid a lot. The question isn't, does he need that much money, uh, in order to be willing to put out effort? The answer is clearly no. We know that 
a uh, hundred years ago, people weren't paid anywhere near as much as they're paid now at the top of these hierarchies, and yet they still work longer hours and, and, mm-hmm. and try plenty hard. You have to be paid in line with what others like you are paid. And if we didn't pay uh, the, the top CEOs uh, a salary roughly in line with the value of the difference they make to the bottom line of the organization, some other organization would bid them away. So if we don't, if we don't think the fact that you're uh, 10% better or even 1% better than the next best executive, that that means you ought to earn 10,000 times more than, than the people below you. If we don't think that, and I don't, yeah. then the solution to that is to tax top salaries much more heavily. Mm-hmm. That way, uh, relative salaries are the same across positions. There's no incentive for me to leave Apple and go work for Google uh, if, if they're going to tax all the, the executive salaries at the same rate. And the idea that uh, executives won't work hard because the tax rate went up, that's completely a non-starter. We, we know that's not true. Yeah. There's four, 45 people who think they they want to be president of GM someday. One, if we raise the tax rate a few points, they're all going to start playing golf on Friday. Yeah. That's not the way the world's work, working. Uh, yeah. But, but those aren't questions best left to the market to decide on. So those are policy questions. You know, what's a fair distribution of income? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a social question. How much do people need? We, we know that it's inefficient for people at the top to earn so much money. Why? Because uh, there's a very large and very contentious literature on the determinants of human thriving. Mm-hmm. And the most robust finding in that literature is that when all the mansions double in size, the occupants of them are neither happier nor healthier or in any other way better off than before. It just raises the bar that determines how big a mansion they feel they need. Mm-hmm. Prob- they're probably less happy when the mansions double because they're more hassles to attend to. So, so yeah, those are questions that I think we need to have some common voice in how to, how to allocate resources like that, rather than just say, let, let the, the dog fight be settled in the marketplace. That's not a smart approach. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting you, you, you bring that up. That's something like, I'm just always fascinated with like, you know, human behavior. And for a while I dove into like positive psychology and, uh, you know, I learned about like hedonic adaptation and, you know, when, when you have these millions or even billions of dollars, you know, going from, uh, like they've, yeah, like you mentioned, there's a ton of literature, like the difference between like 18 million and 25 million, that's like nothing. They don't, they don't notice the, like they, they nothing. Right. And then we think about how much like that money could go and pay workers a better wage and, you know, and so much of it seems to be about status too, where it's not even really chasing the happiness. It's this guy wants a bigger house than that guy or a better jet than this guy. So they're kind of battling it out while people are are kind of at the bottom. But the, the, the argument I always hear and, uh, is, is if we, we change the tax rate, right. Amazon, for example, Jeff Bezos or the Walton family, if we raise their taxes or if we increase the minimum wage, they're going to pack up shop and go to another country. And that's the number one thing I hear. So I, I want to, I want to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, that, that is the standard response. And look, if the tax rate were a hundred percent, people wouldn't work. Uh, 
if, if, the, if the government took all your income, put it into a pot and then gave an equal amount to everybody, uh, some people actually recommend that. If the government did that, that would be a disaster. Everybody would notice, hey, my neighbor's leaving, living just as well as I am. He, I work all day. He's not doing anything. Yeah. Uh, people would eventually stop working and we'd have zero income. So, so nobody's in favor of a hundred percent tax rate. Uh, the, it's a, an empirical question. How high can the tax rate go before we really do stop, uh, people's incentives to, to participate in the game in a meaningful way. And, and we've got some, some hard information about that. So in California, in the, in the context of long running budget deficits that were gutting the schools and, and the infrastructure, the, the Jerry, uh, Jerry Brown in his most recent term raised the tax rate on top earners by 50%, uh, it, the state highest income tax rate was one of the highest in the nation to begin with. They raised it 50% on top of that. There were the same predictions you mentioned. Oh, everybody's going to move to Oregon. They're going to move to the Nevada. They're going yeah. now that now there's a very authoritative Stanford university study showing that of all the people in California, uh, the people in the 99th percentile of the income distribution, 98th percentile, the ninth, all the way down to the, the per, poorest of one percentile. How often do those people leave the state? The 99th percentile earners leave the state way less often than any other group. Yeah. They have lives in California. They're successful there. Things are working for them there. If they don't like something about their lives, there's probably that the roads all have deep potholes in them and the schools are, are, yeah. are getting kind of dangerous. Uh, they, and there's homeless. We all do public investment to, that would clear up some of those problems. The, the higher tax on them is the first step and a solution to that. It's not a reason to move out. It's a reason to stay. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting that you bring that up. I remember, you know, in 2016, when Trump was elected, I saw there was probably hundreds of, uh, millionaires saying I'm leaving the country. I'm moving to Canada. Right. And if anybody could do it, they have plenty of money and influence. They could do it. Right. And like, who's the last celebrity you heard that relocated from here. So that, that makes. That makes sense as well. And yeah, and yeah I, I, I live here in Nevada. And let me tell you, I don't see a huge influx of people moving here from California, even though in comparison, like I'm in Las Vegas, it is way cheaper than California, but we still don't see that huge. There used to be like when I moved here back in what, like 95 with my dad, when I was just a little guy, uh, there was more people and Las yeah. Vegas was really expanding, but right now too, the housing market is insane. So I, I guess that makes sense. You know, it's that quick go-to like, Hey, people are going to move out of the country or out of this, mm -hmm. but we're not taking into consideration all those, all those other factors. Do you think there, there also needs to be, or should be policies around outsourcing jobs? Like that's something that, you know, they talk about like keeping jobs domestic, but should there be like a tax? Is there any idea around that? Like if you're outsourcing jobs or. Well, a lot of our current policies, uh, or the opposite of a tax to keep jobs here. They're, they're a fiscal, uh, incentive to move jobs over overseas. Really? Uh, and, so, and so, yeah, I think, uh, we, we definitely do not want to be shipping jobs out that could be usefully done here. And, and there's, there's really, I mean, the idea that machines are going to take over everything and that there's a, a, a future in which there's not enough 
useful things to be done, that, that's, that's really way overblown. I mean, right now we're in the midst of, a, of an ex, existential crisis that threatens the planet. Mm-hmm. We've got to do wholesale investment in, in infrastructure, green energy, charging stations, uh, windmills, solar farms, uh, all that's going to require an enormous amount of human input to manage. Uh, there are so many jobs to be done that we, you know, rather than spend the extra money on bigger cars, more expensive wedding celebrations, bigger mansions, and, and things that we know really don't serve the purposes, even of the people who are buying uh, individually, mm-hmm. it's rational to buy a, a big SUV because you're less likely to die in a, in a collision if you're in the big car and somebody else hits you. But if everybody buys a big car, everybody's more likely to get killed than if everybody drove a small car. So, yeah. so what's smart for the individual to do in situations like that doesn't make any sense at all for us all to do. And, and that's where with simple changes in policy, we can, we can make everybody better off. It's, it's not a question of fairness or justice even, although I think those are concepts that matter here, it's just inefficient to spend the money the way we do. Uh, mm-hmm. if we, if we patched the roads, if we built solar farms, if we did hospital surge capacity, if we invested more in vaccines, everybody would be happier. And the amount of money it would take to do that, if it came at the expense of smaller mansions and less money spent on wedding celebrations, it wouldn't hurt anybody. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a pure win-win situation if we made the right choices. Yeah. And, you know, on that, I'm, I, I'm wondering what your, do you think that there's something, you know, just about like in, in the book, you talk about, you know, more collective societies compared to, you know, the United States and how, you know, more individualistic and, you know, there's a lot of status competition here as well. Do you think part of this is just like the message from what we're teaching like kids as they're growing up and how they compare themselves to others and all that. Because for example, if my son gets bigger, well, not like not bigger, of course he's going to get bigger, but as he goes and if he succeeds and makes more money, like I think about like, does he think, you know, a mansion is going to make him happy or a big car is going to make him happy and all these things, because something I often share when I share my story about addiction and stuff when I was making the most money I've ever made, I was the most miserable. So I, I'm fortunate that I learned mm-hmm. that lesson. So do you think this is something that we should be teaching like future generations about and kind of shifting that conversation a little bit so they don't think they need these things? You know, I think it's natural for people to feel they need what others around them have. Mm. Uh, I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer long ago uh, in Nepal in a small village. I lived in a two-room house. It didn't have any plumbing or, or electricity. Uh, uh, there was never a, a day in the two years I lived in that house that it felt subjectively to be in any way inadequate. It was a, a totally adequate house. I invited people over without hesitation. If I lived in that same house here in the States, uh, my kids wouldn't have wanted their friends to know where we lived. They would have mm. been ashamed. I would have been ashamed. Context is local. It shapes your evaluation in totally natural ways. Uh, if you're, if you're going to, if you're taking your son to visit his grandparents, he's, he's six years old, say, and he says, Daniel, are we almost there yet? Well, there's 10 miles to go. What's your answer? Well, if there's 10 miles to go and the total trip is 12 miles, you say, yeah, we're almost there. 
uh, what if the total trip means 120 miles in this 10 months? No, we're just getting started. Context yeah. shapes every evaluation. Mm. You're not a bad person if that's the way you think about things. If if everyone in your circle is spending $35,000 on uh, their kid's wedding reception this year, and that's about the average of the U.S. now, that if you, if you spend half that, you'll feel like you've sent your guests home uh, wondering whether you even understood what an important day it was. You, know, mm -hmm. you want to, you want people to go home thinking that, that you put on the right party for, for, for your guests. And so you spend what others spend. If you're really creative, maybe you can do it for less than they spend, but half of all people are in the bottom half of the creativity distribution. So that's not an option for everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there, there, you can't, you won't educate anybody out of that fundamental aspect of human nature, mm -hmm. nice things are, are relatively nice things. That's, yeah. that's just what nice means. It's a, it's a quintessentially relative concept. And so in those situations, there are inherent pressures for arms races. Uh, we recognize that explicitly in many contexts. So the, the auto racing, racing associations, they put a limit on engine displacement. Is that a good thing? You, you can't have more than three liters uh, of engines. Mm. Well, if you didn't have that, the, the engines would be 10 times as big. There'd still be one winner. The, the, the speeds would be higher. There'd be more risk, more people killed. Why not regulate that? Why not, why not encourage people to, to spend less on that? So we'd have more to spend on things that we know would make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting. You know, when I think about it, as you were talking, I was thinking about just kind of my, my upbringing and, and yeah, so much of it was, it was relative. It was comparison, right? Like, uh, it was really interesting, for example, just the, you know, the, the schools I went to growing up, even my high school, it was half like middle to lower class. And then the other half was like middle to upper class and very upper class. Right. And somehow we were all going to the same school, but if I went to a friend's house, like, you know, I'm living with my single dad in this little apartment, but if I went to a friend's house, it is a house. They had like a, they had like a lake in their backyard here in Las Vegas. So think about how expensive it is to have a lake in that complex. And it's, it's, it's relative. But if I was only friends with people in my apartment complex, would I have felt so bad? And I think, I think the main reason I love books like yours and learning about this is because I, I grew up feeling bad, right? Like I, I felt bad, like my parents aren't doing good enough and all these other things. And I just completely neglected how luck plays a role in this. And something I think you could do a much better job explaining than I ever can is the Matthew effect, right? So, so for me as a content creator, when I learned about the Matthew effect, I was like, oh, right. So for example, uh, you know, a best-selling author. If they're a best-selling author because of chance, they, you know, uh, they sat next to the right person at some point or whatever, the chances of them being a, a, a second-time bestseller is exponentially higher, right? And a lot of us don't take that into consideration. But, but yeah, can you kind of explain how that happens, like just even, you know, throughout life with education, jobs, and, and all these things, how the Matthew yeah. effect works? Yeah, no, it, it, it's, yeah, a, a life consists of... Um, a thousand different steps, probably tens of thousands of different steps. Each one depends on the ones that came before it, uh, and influences all the ones that come afterwards. And so, it, yeah, as you say, 
Oh, I think a vivid example is uh, an aspiring actor. 300 people show up for a casting call. A uh, hundred of them do really well in the reading. The casting director uh, can't make a meaningful judgment uh, as to who's the best out of those hundred. And so he doesn't pick anybody in the, in, the, in the group that read poorly, but out of the ones that were all indistinguished indistinguishably good, he picks one and he casts that person in the role. The film goes on to be, be a hit. Now that person has a credit line in a, in a, a hit movie. Does that affect the likelihood he'll be cast in a, a, an influential role in the next film? You can't imagine anybody saying no to that question. So yeah, that, that's the Matthew effect. A little bit of success reads a higher probability of success in the next round, and it accumulates step upon step. Uh, if you if you got accepted to the good school, uh, then you're more likely to get the good job. But uh, we know that who got accepted to the good school is, uh, beyond a certain point, essentially a random variable. There are mm -hmm. way more people who are qualified than they can accept. So that who do they take? It doesn't matter who they take, but if they take you, then you're going to get the the internship that leads to the investment banking job, if that's what you think you want, and uh, it will compound from there on. Yeah. Now, hey, it's, it's something I, I think about in, in your book, since I just finished reading it again, was you mentioned uh, uh, Brian Cranston and his role in, as Walter White, right? That was could have gone to, you know, I think it was Matthew Broderick or somebody else. Uh, yes. But, but yeah, he got very fortunate. He came from Malcolm in the middle, like a little sitcom that was like, funny, and he, and he just stars in this like amazing award-winning drama. Right. And now he's, you know, extremely successful and all that. Before the show went into production, uh, the showrunner wanted to cast Cranston, uh, the, mm. uh, the money people said, no, uh, he's never had a leading dramatic role. We can't take, take a risk on somebody like that. They offered the job. I can't, I can't remember who they offered it to first. Broderick was one of them. Broderick said, no, I, somehow I cannot imagine Broderick as Walter White. That just never made sense to me yeah, at all. But, yeah. but the other one was John Cusack. And, oh, yeah. Uh, you can imagine Cusack pulling off the Walter White role quite well. But for whatever reason, he too said no. And only then did the money men reluctantly agree to let... Uh, Cranston get the Walter White role. Of course, he went on to win the, the best actor in a dramatic series four out of the five seasons that the show ran. Uh, I wanted to call that the, the best television drama ever. In my book, my editor said, no, you can't call it that. Uh, <laughs> we, so we argued about it. <laughs> what do you think the best? He ended up letting me calling it, letting me call it one of the best television dramas <laughs> of all time. Yeah, Cranston is the first to admit that if he hadn't gotten that break, uh, we still wouldn't have heard of him. I never saw Malcolm in the Middle. Middle, I don't know if you did, uh, but no, uh, I didn't watch. No. He's, he's he's now the most sought after actor in his demographic. Uh, mm -hmm. He's a huge, and there there are thousands of others. I mean, he's good. He's really good. Mm -hmm. There are thousands of others just as good who we we've never heard of because they didn't get that break. Yeah, I, I think, you know, something, something when I, when I read your book the first time, I was looking around, right? 
and just so many different fields. Like uh, I, I read a ton, like what separates this author from this author? Because yeah, there's different styles and things like that. And people have different preferences and tastes, but at a certain point, the quality, the quality kind of has a ceiling, right? Um, if you, even if you look at sports, we just had the Olympics. It depends on, on the, the day that person had, how good did they sleep? But when we think about, you know, who gets into what schools, it could be how, what, what happened that morning before they took the test, the SATs, right, right, right. you know, uh, when you're submitting college applications, what if the person reading your application had a bad day or, or so many, so many other factors when, when. You know, as an educator, is this something that you you try to teach, like you were teaching like young people about? Like, hey, if you don't get this job, maybe like like maybe the owner's brother's friend or something like that came in. Yeah. Or you know, yeah, there there are some really uh, great experiments that that make the point you just made. Uh, one by Duck and Watson co-authors uh, called Music Lab. They set up a website with 40 indie bands and one song each uh, on it. You could download the songs and, and if you wanted on one condition, you had to rate it, give it a quality rating. How much did you like it? Maybe a one to 10 point scale. That was the way they determined objectively how people felt about the songs, how, how well they liked them. And they raged and it, you know, some songs, uh, a few songs, almost everybody liked, uh, a few songs hardly anybody liked, but most of them were scattered out uh, along mm -hmm. the, the scale. Then they made eight different websites and sent different people to different ones. And it was the same thing. You saw the 40 bands, the names of the 40 songs. But in addition to that, and you could download any of them, but in addition to that, you saw how many times the songs had already been downloaded mm. and what the average rating they'd gotten so far. The, the first website, People didn't see those last two pieces of information. So in that one, uh, they focused on a, a song that was in the middle of the quality rankings, 26 out of 48. It was number one on one of the eight websites. It was number 44 on <laughs> another one. And, and what, what determined where it ended up was just the luck of how the first people who happened to, to listen to it ranked it. If, if you were lucky enough that the first people who heard your song liked it and gave it a good rating, then that created a halo effect that just carried you up to the top of the heap. Yeah. Uh, the, the ones that, that the first listener didn't like it, tough luck. You went, you went sliding off the edge of the table. Yeah. Did, did you talk about that, that study in under the influence? I think uh, maybe. I, I think I, that's it. That study is in uh, success and luck. I, I, I oh, did talk okay, about okay. It. that's what yeah. I was just yeah. <laughs> reading. But but yeah, and so for example, this is really interesting too. For example, like I came from the YouTube world, uh, and on every YouTube video, it shows how many views. Right, people, the creator has the option to hide their subscribers or or not, but the views always show. And when I started learning about uh, conformity and peer pressure and how we're influenced by others around us. It made sense. Like the analogy when I'm trying to teach people about this stuff is say you're in a new town, you don't know anybody, you don't, you're, and you're starving, right? You go out, there's two restaurants right next door to each other. Yeah. One's packed. Yeah. One, one is empty, right? Yeah. Which one are you going to go to? So when we're creating content, like on YouTube, if you see one video on a topic and it has hundreds of views, the other one has thousands or tens of thousands. You're, 
you get that, like you mentioned, the halo effect. You're like, oh, well, yeah. it must be good. Everything about this video must be good. And then that that kind of perpetuates the Matthew effect yeah. as well, right? Exactly. Yo, that's a very powerful example of the Matthew effect. And and it's important to, re to recognize that uh, on average, that's a, a pretty adaptive way to choose which mm -hmm. restaurant to go to or because if if uh, the the two restaurants were reliably uh, one full, the other one empty, that would be a a pretty good indication that it would, the the full one was better. But you can imagine a Saturday night where the first people to show up, there's nobody at either restaurant, so at random they pick one yeah. of them, and then the second person sees that well at least there's somebody eating there, uh, I'll go there too, and then suddenly that one's packed and the other one's empty. It's got nothing to do with the quality of food in the two places. Yeah. So it, 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 it's not always a bad indicator, but it can. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, I, I personally try to try new things or I, I try not to look at, for example, my, my son and I, we watch a lot of movies and all sorts of stuff and try not to look at reviews because sometimes, you know, something just got bigger and, you know, uh, yeah. just us allocating our time. Like I have my son on the weekends or whatever. So when we're going to be playing a video game together or watching a movie, if we just base it on reviews, I have no idea why this one took off and this one didn't. So right. best thing I could do is kind of form my own opinion and check it out. But, but yeah. Um, so when it comes to how these, how these things grow exponentially and Something I've been thinking about a lot just the last 24 hours is, um, you know, especially just creators. I, I saw a friend who's a creator and he's been kind of gone for uh, a little while and he came back and he was extremely depressed because personally, I think the stuff he makes is amazing. Some of the best I've ever seen, but it wasn't taking off. Right. And. And yeah, and like I, I had a talk with him. I talked about some of this stuff and I was like, hey, man, a lot of it has to do with luck. So I, I, I just I don't know, like, how do we how do we balance things out while also educating people about like, hey, don't beat yourself up. Don't take it so personal. I think that's one of my biggest fears with my son is that he's going to take on the brunt of that. And the failure is his, you know, do you do you think like I don't I don't I don't know what the solution is for that. You know, I think uh, there there really isn't a way to insulate yourself from mm. all the disappointments you're going to encounter in life. I mean, there, there's only so much to go around, and 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 some people are going to end up with the best slots in, in every domain. That's inevitable. Where I think we can make a difference is is in uh, creating a society where where the worst outcomes aren't nearly as bad as they currently <laughs> are. I I uh, had shoulder surgery a few years ago, and I was working with a physical therapist, interesting guy. He said, uh, we were talking about some of the work, work I had done on the determinants of human satisfaction. He said he lived for a couple of years in Australia, and he noticed uh, while he was living there that people there were much happier than most of the people that he knew in the U.S. And he, he was curious why that was. So he thought about it a lot and talked to people. And eventually he decided it was for three reasons. He said the three things that his American friends worry most about, they didn't worry about at all. One was, if I get sick, how am I going to deal with the medical expenses? When I retire, how am I going to be able to afford to maintain a, a reasonable standard of living? 
And when my kids get college age, how am I going to pay for those bills? The, mm. Those three things are taken care of in many of the, the social democracies around the world. Uh, we could take care of those here. We do not, by and large, adequately take care of them. And I think if, if people uh, knew that they could send their kids to good schools, knew that if they got sick, they'd, they'd have adequate health care, knew that when they retired, they'd be, be covered, I think, um, all right, so things don't work out perfectly in life. Uh, you're at least spared the worst indignity uh, mm -hmm. that, that might befall people. That, that's one step we could, we could take. But two, uh, I think teaching your son that, that uh, the, the satisfactions from helping others are, are, are maybe not as obvious as the satisfactions as only a, a shiny thing, but, but they're in very, very short order more compelling. There's a mm -hmm. psychologist at UBC, uh, Elizabeth Dunn, who's done some interesting research. She gives her subjects $20. Some of them, she says, go and buy something for yourself. Others, she says, go and buy something for someone else. And then she surveys them in a variety of ways in the following weeks. And she finds that the ones who spent the $20 on someone else mm. are reliably significantly happier they're the ones who spent the $20 on themselves. Now you got to spend something on yourself. Uh, you're not going to be an ascetic, but, but, uh, the, the other literature that I think would be worth calling to your son's attention is the literature on gratitude. Um, mm -hmm. This, this is a very compelling literature in economics. We say, if you have more of one thing, that means making do with less of something else, uh, in the domain of the emo experiencing emotions like gratitude, that's not, that's not true. The more you experience the emotion of gratitude, the more of every good thing we know how to measure comes your way. Mm -hmm. You're happier if you experience the emotional gratitude. The experiments can induce the emotion of gratitude in you. Uh, so we, we, we make that induction and, and we, People are happier. They sleep better. They have less psychosomatic illnesses. Mm -hmm. Their, their friends, uh, like them better. If you want to be successful, you've got to be a member of a high performing team. Uh, the high performing teams are pretty picky when it comes to picking new members. They, they don't need you. Uh, do they want you? If they don't like you, they're not going to want you on the team. So, so the fact that if you experience gratitude, if you're humble, humble, if you recognize and acknowledge that some of your success was, was due to good fortune, uh, people will be more likely to think you're worth having on the team. So, yeah. so yeah, I think it would be helpful if more people knew about those yeah. kinds of findings. Yeah. It, it's funny that you say that I, I'm, you know, I like to think of myself as very scientifically minded and don't like to think about, you know, like, uh, you know, the supernatural or spiritual, but, uh, you know, when I hear about karma, right. It, it makes sense. It just seems like rational. The more I'm nice to people and friend to people and I give more than I take and stuff, people are going to be like, that's a good guy. Right. And they're more likely to tell someone else that's a good guy. So right. it just seems logical to me, you know, and it's something I've been trying to teach my son, especially gratitude for it was a huge part of my life and my recovery and all that. And I, but I, I want to ask you this because I, I, I hadn't even thought about this before we came on, but as an economist. All right. And you mentioned people being happier 
you know, when they don't have to worry about college or healthcare and stuff. And I'll, I'll just put it like this. Like I, when I got into, I didn't start paying attention to politics until 2016, but when like I learned about like Bernie Sanders, I was like, all right, that sounds pretty cool. Right. And I hear people saying, oh my God, that that's socialist and this is crazy. It's going to turn into Venezuela. But then you look at the Scandinavian countries. I'm like, well, why don't we look over there? They seem to be doing things all right. And I know we already touched on like, if we, you know, change the tax system or provide healthcare that, you know, people say, uh, you know, not only are jobs going to leave or companies are going to leave, but people are going to get lazy and they'll just be, uh, you know, and, but on the world happiness index, these places are just killing us. So as an economist, I know in the book, you talk about progressive consumption tax, but how close is that to like a Medicare for all system or college free college, like at least like community college type stuff, like some of the policies that they talk about the super progressives. Yeah. I think the, the, the clearest contrast we see is between the Nordic countries and us. There, the tax rates on top individual earners are much higher than here. Uh, inheritance taxes are higher there too. Uh, the higher revenues they raise uh, through those, those taxes uh, directed largely at public investment that, that benefits people up and down the income ladder. And there's a, a subset of Americans who travels to those countries and they say, oh, I don't want to be like, like them. Uh, it's always been puzzling to me. I've traveled to all those countries. Pretty nice. And my, my reaction is, wow, wouldn't it be great to be like them? The rich people are happier there than the rich people here are, even though the tax more heavily. The, the poor people are, are happier there uh, because their conditions of life uh, are, are objectively much better than here. Their schools are better. The, the, the Finns have by far the best schools anywhere. The healthcare system is better. Uh, the, the, the trains are fast and quiet. The, the, the public transit systems in general in the cities are all uh, uh, dense and efficient. So what is it that some Americans see when they travel to those countries that makes, makes them say, wow, wouldn't it be awful if we were like that? I just yeah. don't get that. Yeah. Uh, the, the, all the evidence we have suggests that doing things the way they do it is better for everybody than doing it the way we do. Yeah. And I think uh, in, in my most recent book, I, I, I tackle that question. You know, I, I think that's a challenge for my, my theoretical framework. I, I claim, and this big literature claims that if we spend less on private consumption beyond a certain point and use the same resources to invest in the public sphere, everybody would be happier, the rich included. Why then don't the rich elect politicians who will do that? I think that's a, that's the, mm. if I'm so smart, how come I'm not rich question? Yeah. And, and I wish I had focused on that question much earlier. I think there's a cogent answer to it. Uh, what the, the, the answer I, I suggest is that they suffer from what I call the mother of all cognitive illusions. What's the rich guy worried about when he thinks about being taxed more heavily? Uh, well, uh, he, he, he thinks about that. He's not worried. They're going to take away his ability to buy what he needs. Uh, of course. Nobody's got a proposal on the table that would threaten that. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what's he worrying about? Well, I won't be able to buy what I want. You know, uh, what, what does he want? He wants life special extras, of course. The yeah. nice things that make life seem special. Uh, and when you think about uh, higher taxes, uh, 
he's he's going to think about uh, well the the natural way for any of us to think about how it would be if they raised our taxes would be to try to think back to the last time they did that. That doesn't work though in the current environment because tax rates have been falling steadily in the U.S. since <laughs> World War II. It's ninety-two percent of the top rate in World War II. When I graduated from Georgia Tech in 1966, top rate in 70, in Reagan's fourth term, 52 is 37% now. So you can't use that mental heuristic to, to see how higher taxes would affect you. So what do you do? You think back to the last time you had less income. Mm. You do know, it's, it's true, when you, your taxes go up, you have less income to spend. And if you're rich, there probably were times in your life when you had less income, maybe you had a bad business year, a, a divorce, uh, 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 an injury, maybe your kid got arrested, uh, you had to hire an expensive lawyer, a house fire, that, that'll put you behind yeah. uh, financially. All those times, uh, they know how they felt. They felt awful. Uh, and. They don't want to go, go have that happen again, but what they don't recognize, and this is the cognitive illusion, is that, that what happened each of those times was that they had less money and everybody else had the same amount of money as before. Mm -hmm. And your ability to get the scarce things that make life seem special, the penthouse of apartment with a sweeping view of Central Park, how do you get that? You have to outbent other people like you who own it and your ability to do that depends only on your relative bidding power. And mm -hmm. when your taxes go up and their taxes go up too, no one's bidding power is changed yeah. one iota. So, yeah. so we could, we could finance those investments in the public sphere without giving up anything that matters. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, a, it's across the board and, and, you know, I've been really interested in like social signaling lately too, right? When, we, when you think about when people are, you know, buying clothes that are worth thousands of dollars yeah. or certain shoes or driving certain cars, right? It's just a show. It's showing, yeah. Hey, here is my status. Right. But if none right. of you can do that, but you're, you're still, you're, you're lower, but still at the top of that lower level. Right. Yeah. And, and exactly. Yeah. If you have a hundred thousand dollar watch and that's the best one out there, then you're, you're still telling people I'm the richest guy out there, even though it used to be people had million dollar watches. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's nuts too, because when you were saying that, you know, when people look back to the last time they didn't have as much or whatever, like it's, it's interesting to me. And I wonder what separates people. I might need to see if there's any research on this because my thought is, I don't want other people dealing with what I went through. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. since I know it was that bad, I don't want to leave everybody behind. I want to bring them up and say, Hey, Hey, come on, come on up here and join me. You know, uh, and I'm no, I'm no saint. I do what I can, but that's where my mind goes when I think about where I, I used to be, you know? Um, but I, I have a couple more questions for you, Robert. And when, when we're looking at this and how, how much luck plays a factor into how these people progress and, you know, uh, become wealthy and all this, one debate that often comes up when you see, uh, you know, conservatives versus like liberals, progressives arguing is conservatives will say, or not all, but some will say, you are arguing for equality of outcome, right? But when I look at your book and I understand this kind of myth of meritocracy and all that, when they say there's an equality of opportunity, like, do you think that in our current state that 
you know, if we did like John Rawls, like veil of ignorance, like everybody, no matter who you are, you come out with this equality of opportunity and every single, cause I know they, they point to different people say, oh, this person did it. This person did it, you know? So I'm curious. Well, it, even if we had pure leveling, uh, at the starting line, everybody comes out exactly the same, uh, it, in these markets that, that cook and I call winner take all markets, uh, they, because the rewards in them are so high, if you're a little bit better than the next best person, essentially you can serve the whole market. If you're the best neurosurgeon, uh, you can give advice to the whole world about how to treat mm. this rare illness. Uh, and, and it, it's good for consumers to be able to get the best advice. It's, they're willing to pay a lot for it. There's a huge reward to that, but the, the playing field is set up so that, uh, the the size of the reward you get really makes absolutely no difference in <laughs> the the ability to attract qualified contestants to that tournament. So there's going to be a lot of people who want to be the top player in every field still. There are natural limits on human ability. There are natural limits on the ability to work. There are only 24 hours of the day. Mm the finalists in those tournaments are all going to be right bumping up against those natural limits. Uh, uh, they're all hardworking. They're all really talented. Mm -hmm. Find the talent, most talented and hardworking one among them. She's going to be only average luck on average. Maybe she'll be really lucky. Maybe she'll be really unlucky, but on average, yeah. we didn't cho choose her on that basis. We chose her because she was the hardest working, most talented one. She'll have average luck. There'll be somebody breathing down her neck. Uh, there'd be a large group breathing out. They'll have average luck on average, but the luckiest among them are going to be really lucky. And that's all it's going to take to push them past her into the winner's circle. The, mm -hmm. the, the winner will be talented and hardworking to be sure, but without being also very lucky, she wouldn't have been a winner. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, there's really no, uh, claim that you have though. I'm entitled to this top position. Uh, you're lucky if you got the top position, mm -hmm. been any, any of you who got, yeah. And, yeah. and that way, if, if, if the reward for the top position is taxed a little more heavily, uh, is that the greatest injustice you can think of? Come on. There, there, there are a lot of unjust things yeah. going on out there. Yeah. It's yeah. I, I think about, uh, for some reason I'll say that I think the study, what they did, it was at, uh, maybe Harvard or Yale or something like that. But anyways, the people getting into these Ivy league schools, they've been the best of the best, right. Of all their schools. But then when you put them all together, depression rates hit because now you have the worst of, of the best. And, you know, there's someone who might be, you know, they, they may have had that excess of luck their entire lives. Then they hit this period. Half of you are in the bottom half now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think something I one of, uh, you know, my favorite things about the book is that you, you have this regular reminder aside from gratitude, but also to, to be humble. Right. So I'm going to butcher the quote. But it it stuck out it stood out to me again from your book, and it's what I wanted to ask you because something I learned a long time ago. My sponsor actually, when I first got sober, he's like, "Hey, Chris, it's a lot easier to change you than it is the rest of the world." I'm like, "Okay, I get it, right?" It was pretty individualist, but now like kind of broadened it out. But anyways, you 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 talk about this quote of like how we just kind of 
like it's about like in the future we look back and talk about how grateful we were you know or lucky we were but mm-hmm. when we're looking forward it's like hey opportunity i gotta work hard so i probably screwed up that quote but for everybody listening i want to end on a positive note how can we like manage our own lives a little bit better while moving forward but also being grateful for the opportunities that we've had so we we don't feel entitled to it or that we're just the best yeah i I think one of the things that uh distresses me most uh in reactions to that book uh are people who come away saying that the message is that it's all luck it's not all luck if you don't work hard if you don't bring something of value to the table, you're probably not going to end up being one of the players in the final rounds. So mm-hmm. It's not all luck, but without luck, you don't make it either. So luck is an important condition for getting into the winner's circle, but it's not due only to luck that you get there. So I think as a parent, I want to encourage my kids, uh, to, to think it's up to them. If you want to make something in your life, you got to put, put the, the time in on tasks. You got to get good at something. I, I tell my MBA students that in a, in a, a winner take all world, uh, the real payoff comes from getting to be the best in the world at what you do. Mm-hmm. And many of them, when they're looking to take a job, can't see past the starting salary offers. That's the most uh, visible thing about any job. Uh, what economists have taught uh, uh, for hundreds of years is that if a job is unpleasant, the employer has to pay people more to get them to do it. Yeah. So, so if, if you look at all your job offers, the highest paying one is probably a job where the employer wants you to do something that most people would rather not do. Uh, in, in the case of the MBA students I taught, it's, it's an investment banking or financial analyst yeah. job, you know, crap jobs on the, on the substance of what you do all day, but there's a lot of money to be had. Uh, don't take those jobs, uh, because you, if you want to get to be the best at what you do, you're going to have to, uh, focus really hard for tens of thousands of hours. Maybe, maybe it won't be quite that long though. Yeah. researchers about expertise are still arguing about that. Maybe yeah. it's 2000 hours, maybe it's 5,000, maybe it's 20,000, but it's a lot of hours of really hard, deliberate practice you have to put in mm-hmm. to, to get to be the best at something or really good at something. And, and if you don't like what you're doing, you're not going to, you're not going to be willing to do that. Yeah. So take a job that rings your bell. You'll, you'll want, you'll want the time you spend on task will be a, a, a negative, will be a positive, uh, over time, you'll get better and better in it. Maybe you'll get to be the best at the world at it. Mm-hmm. And even if it's a task that only a tiny fraction of 1% of the world's population cares about that, that could be enough to make you a rich person. Good. If that happens, mm-hmm. but if it doesn't happen, at least you are spending your life doing something that was rewarding to you quite apart from what you got picked. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if we had good schools and healthcare and retirement, it wouldn't matter that you didn't get paid much. Yeah, exactly. And and I, I, I get curious about that. Like people who are like, oh, you're just saying it's all luck. And that's something I'm trying to also balance out with my son or what I'm talking with others too. Like, like I mentioned, I work insanely hard. For example, 
uh, you know, you, the fact that you and I are talking right now, it's because I reached out, right? Like yeah. it's, I, you know, I've had a lot of great, amazing, big authors. And sometimes I'm surprised that they've even come on and things like that, but it's because I'm persistent and I, I play the numbers game, you know, and, and I could see somebody looking from the outside and saying, oh, that's luck. But it's like, no, I was taking the opportunity. I did when I could, I worked hard, I refined different skills and, you know, and all sorts of different things. So it's definitely working hard while also being grateful. Like, Hey, I'm lucky you and, saw the and, email. And I was, I was very impressed uh, to read that you, you read 230 books so far this year. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to offer a guess that if you hadn't read 250 books, uh, you and I wouldn't be talking to one another today. Exactly. I was probably not the third or fourth out of those 250 books you read. I'm guessing it was more like 247 or 248 that you finally got to mind. So yeah, it makes a difference how much you're willing to put, put in on task. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, it's just, I, I, you know, when people are aware of that kind of balance, like, and just notice it. Now it's like, okay, now I'm going to read more. I'm going to practice this skill or refine it or, or what have you. But, but yeah, uh, yeah. After this conversation, now I want to go read under the influence again, after we talked about that a little bit too, but Robert, uh, I know you're, you're, you're retired now and stuff, but I'm curious, what are you working on for everybody out there or where can they find you in case you decide to write another amazing book and all that kind of stuff? Uh, I'm still writing uh, occasional New York Times columns. Uh, I just uh, I just published a piece in Nautilus that I had originally titled "The Libertarian Case for Vaccine Passports." Yeah, uh, the Nautilus didn't want that title. They were afraid. They say most of their readers come from a, uh, an online lake from somewhere. They've never been to Nautilus. They didn't want. Uh, do readers to think they were a libertarian publication. So I ended yeah. up changing the title to the economic case for vaccine passports. But the, the piece is really an argument about why this complaint that requiring vaccine passports uh, violates my freedom is a complete non-storm. Yeah. Uh, if you, if you go back and you read John Stuart Mill, uh, vaccine passports are totally legitimate, uh, under any reasonable construal of what rights a society that, that has head on right would want to defend and enforce. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I'm actually, I'll, I'll make sure to link that down in the description as well. But la last quick question, any, you think you're going to be writing any more, any more books in the near future? Oh, yeah, you take I'll, a little break. I'll start on another book. I've got a couple of ideas. Yeah. I had a, a great conversation with a former graduate school classmate. I have two, two book ideas of, uh, of going to roughly in the same general space as the, the 50 or so books I have written. But then I'm also thinking that it might be fun to try to write some kind of a memoir, mm. you know, uh, try to think back over events in life, what mattered and what didn't. And yeah, no, that, how, that I, how I, ideas I, evolved. That, yeah. that would be, that, I think it would be fun if only for my kids to have access to someday. Absolutely. I, I know I'd love the little pieces of your story in there. I'm like, Robert's lived a pretty interesting life. So if you do do that, I'll be getting it. But yeah, thank you so much for your time, Robert. I'm so glad we were able to connect. And, and yeah, when, when the next book comes out, we'll, we'll do this again sometime. What a pleasure to talk to you, Chris. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Robert Frank. 
And yeah, like I, I hope you took away from that conversation as much as I did, because as phenomenal as that book is, it's, you know, something that, you know, requires some balance, right? Like acknowledging luck, but also recognizing that we have to work hard if we want to get results. And as I discussed, you know, I've taught my son about some of the research around luck and just our perception of feeling lucky and how that influences how hard we work or how hard we try and all that stuff. So I hope that you gained a lot from that conversation, but even more so, I hope you read this book. It's such an important book. And it, you know, at the end of the day, I think it helps us all kind of look at societal issues in a better way, right? We stop judging people so much. We stop thinking like, oh, you you are not successful because you don't work hard. We, we neglect all of these other factors. You know what I mean? So that's one of the reasons why I think this is, you know, so, so, so important. It's not to, you know, discount, you know, our hard work or anything like that, but it's to give other people, you know, true equality of opportunity, all right? As we discussed in that, in, in this conversation, it's like, do we legitimately have equality of opportunity? And I think, you know, through these conversations, we can realize, hey, that's not necessarily the case, but what can we do to get a little bit closer to that goal? You know what I mean? So make sure you head down to the description below. Make sure you're following Robert over on Twitter. Grab a copy of Success and Luck. And I've also linked his newer book, Under the Influence, all right? And yeah, while you're down in the description, again, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And if you're new here, make sure you are following or subscribe to the podcast, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. And if you want to help out the podcast in a completely free way, doesn't cost you a penny, takes two seconds. One, one thing that you could do that helps out a ton is to share the episodes on social media. So if you enjoyed this conversation, if you were like, hey, I think some more people need to learn about success and luck and the myth of meritocracy, share this episode over on your favorite social media platform. That helps a ton. And the second thing is, if you have two seconds, go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. All right, takes just a couple seconds. All this stuff really helps out. It tells the algorithms, yo, this is a pretty decent podcast. You should probably share it with some more people. All right. So if you could share the podcast and leave a rating or review, that'd be super helpful. And some other ways to support the podcast. Uh, if you would like, uh, you can head over to the rewiredsoul.com. I have self-published some books, mainly on mental health and addiction recovery. And yeah, kind of like I discussed in this episode, I wrote a book called Hope, how I overcame, you know, my addiction and struggles with depression and anxiety. But, you know, in the book, I talk about, you know, where my hard work came in and where the luck came in. So if you want to check that out, but yeah, some other ways you can support or to become a patron. And the other thing is down in the description below, there's an affiliate link for better help online therapy. All right. So, uh, you know, therapy isn't available for everyone. Something that we are very fortunate is if we can afford therapy and yeah, BetterHelp is a service that I've personally used, but the cool thing about it is it's affordable. They offer a sliding scale. So if you don't make that much money, you can get therapy at a discounted rate. Uh, but yeah, you do it from the comfort of your own home. You work with a licensed therapist from your, your state. Uh, it 
it helped me out a ton uh, in 2019 when I was really going through it. So any of you who listened to my last episode with Peter Bogosian, you heard about that whole story of what I went through in 2019. And yeah, BetterHelp helped me a ton. So check that out, that affiliate link down in the description if you're interested. All right. But yeah, anyways, another huge thank you to Robert for taking the time to come on. Make sure you follow him and check out his books. And yeah, for all of you, make sure you have an amazing rest of your day, even though it might be a little bit of luck if you do have an amazing rest of your day. But yeah, uh, tomorrow's episode is actually with a philosopher, Greg Caruso, where we talk about uh, kind of kind of a similar subject, but also we dive into some topics about free will and the justice system. But yeah, it's a really cool episode. So make sure that you stay tuned for the episode tomorrow. All right. So yeah, have a great rest of your day and I'll see you next time. <laughs>